1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, as we get to God's word. Hey, um, it fits well. Jones announced it earlier, but if, hey, if you're, if you're considering or just want to know more about our church, the Discovery class is a, a great way to, to do that. It's going to be on Sunday mornings for four weeks, starting in uh, October 15. I teach the class. Uh, we're going to go over the gospel. We go over what it means to be a church, church member. Um, if you want to be a member of this church, it is a requirement. Um, it's uh, the main step you got to take in order to join King's Chapel. And so we'd encourage you to do that. Even if you're not sure, um, we'd still love for you to be a part of that class. There's, you know, if you take the class, you're, you haven't signed on the dotted line, you're all good. Um, but we'd love for you to join our dysfunctional family. Um, and uh, that would be great. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. This is God's word to us this morning. What a gift for God to speak to us. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, in 1984, Tina Turner wrote a song, or at least she sang a song, entitled... What's love got to do with it? Here, here. Right? How does it go? What's love got to do? Got to do? Can't you totally see like Teresa Hamner and Louie Ann Peeler singing that? Like, like they're brush singing in the bathroom, jean jacket and big hair, 1984. That seems like y'all's, y'all's deal, right? It's like, yes. He says, yes. John says, in answer to the question, what's love got to do with it? He says, everything. Everything. You say, listen, Henley, be serious. Okay, fine. Let's be serious. Love is serious business in the Bible. Very serious business. Love is serious business because it is not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, you should love one another. This is a good idea. It is what we call a commandment. In fact, you might say it is the commandment of the scriptures. And as a core commandment, you wouldn't be so shocked to find that it is everywhere. And in fact, it is everywhere. So let's run through it. It's not going to be on the screen because there's so many of them. But you guys know I can talk fast, so keep up. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you should what? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you, 
love one another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly, brotherly affection. Romans 12.8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. Ephesians 4.2, with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Should we keep going? Yes. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And 1 John, it is everywhere. It is all over the place. We already saw it in chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago. We see it here today. We see it in, in 1 John 3, 23 and 1 John 4, 7, 11, and 12. The command to love one another. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just a, on a whim, God has said, love one another. It's serious business. Love is serious business in, in the context of 1 John because it's how you know you have eternal life. That's what the whole point of the book is. How do you know you know God? How do you know you're a child of God? How do you know, we looked at it the last couple weeks, how do you know you're in the family of God? How can you be sure that your experiences of God's love and what you've expressed and experienced, these emotional experiences as a Christian are, are real and not just kind of some feeling? How do you know? Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers John is about tests, testing your faith and growing through that, hopefully an assurance that you have real and true and abiding faith. Do you love the brothers and sisters? That's the test. That's a test. We've looked at a number of them. There's three actually main ones in John. They come twice. He gives them to us twice throughout the book. Do you, true, do you believe the truth? Do you obey the commandments of God? And do you love the brothers and sisters in the family of God? Now listen very clearly. Eternal life is not earned. It is not earned by loving others. But it is the evidence that you have been loved. Eternal life is not how you earn eternal life, or eternal life is not earned by how you love, but it is the evidence that you have it. And therefore, if you express love to one another in word and deed, it becomes a means of growing an assurance that you indeed have eternal life. You've heard the statement, real men do blank, right? Whether it be mow the yard or pray or work out or whatever it is, it's on your bumper sticker. Well, John is saying real Christians, they love Real Christians love. So John provides us a test, the test we've been going through, the, the truth, the commandments, and loving one another. But John doesn't simply stop there with telling us what the test is. He tells us how to pass the test. And he wants you to know how to pass the test. And so that's what he's, what he's providing to us this morning, a high-altitude primer. So we're, you know, this is just three statements he's going to provide for us, a high-altitude primer to help us know how to love. How do you love one another amongst God's people? That's what we're looking at this morning. And he's going to tell us three ways, three ways how you grow to love one another. You call it steps or ways. There's kind of a linear movement to it, I think, but we'll start with the first one he provides us. And the first is this. If you're going to grow to love one another, you have to first escape the love of the evil one. 
You have to escape the love of the evil one. We see this in verses 12 and 13. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Verses 12 and 13 tell us about the nature of the world's love. I'm using this language of escape the love of the evil one, not just because we, I don't want you to love the evil one, but also the, ev- the love that the evil one would have you display is a love that the Bible actually calls hatred. It is, it is opposite day for the devil. That what the Bible calls hatred, he calls love. John points back to the very beginning of the human story. That's the story of Cain and Abel is. And if you haven't grown up in the church, this is a story you found right there in Genesis chapter 3. And the story of Genesis is that God makes the world and everything is good and it's wonderful. And people are right with God and they're right with one another and with creation. And then we disobey. And as soon as we disobey, not only does our relationship with God, that vertical relationship, get broken, but the horizontal relationship gets broken. And what's the first thing that happens after that horizontal relationship gets broken? One brother kills his little brother. In other words, it is is emblematic of humanity, the love of Cain, the quote-unquote love of Cain. John uses the illustration to talk, to point us back to how we all are. John's using the illustration of Cain to tell us a couple things. First is that the love of the world comes from the evil one. That is its beginning. That is its source. That when the devil has entered in, and he has led us into sin and temptation and to death. We are now, it says, like what we looked at last week, which is this shocking thing that, like, I'm a child of the devil, either a child of God or a child of the devil. And he said that this kind of love, the love of the world, the love that leads you to murder and to hate, is the type of love that comes from the devil. There's a familial lineage here. There's a DNA that's being reflected. Cain was a murderer, and by that, he showed his spiritual lineage. It's a spiritual lineage It comes from the evil one. The second thing we learn from the story of Cain and why John points back to that as an illustration is the love of the world follows an unsettling pattern because we all struggle with it. What was Cain's problem? What was at the core? What what led him to hatred and then to murder? Where did it start? Jealousy. And oddly enough, it was a jealousy that his brother was obedient Cain was jealous of his brother's righteousness. His brother's offering was accepted before God while his wasn't. And it turned him, that jealousy turned to hate, which then turned to murder. And what John communicates here is there is a sequence. And he talks about what, what goes on here is within us, we may not struggle with murder. We may not, you know, you, you may not take a machete and run after your neighbor this afternoon. But you may be jealous of your neighbor. Jealous of their car, of their house, of their spouse, of their life. And it began there in the very heart of man. The sequence goes like this. The pattern went jealousy, hatred, murder. That is an unsettling pattern because who hasn't struggled with jealousy? Maybe even this morning. This ought to unsettle us because Jesus says that murder comes in different forms than simply the physical one. He talks about it in Matthew 5. Right, Jesus goes, in, in, the, in Jesus' time, the, 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 the people who understood the law, they would look at the sixth commandment, which says, thou shalt not murder, right, kids? And they would say that simply means that there's nothing more and nothing less than the unlawful taking of a life. But Jesus comes in in the, in the uh, great Sermon on the Mount, and he says, no, it's a little bit more than that. Because if you hate your brother, that's murder as well. If you're angry at your brother, 
Jesus says, true murder is that which is conceived in the heart. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, that is to, to the jury. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is unsettling, this whole pointing back to Cain, because it begins with this innocuous little sin of jealousy. This, jealousy is one of the respectable sins. In fact, you'd almost say some people, right, like what's the great movie about greed is good, right? It's almost a part of the American culture. Jealousy is good. We, we don't talk about jealousy and envy and covetousness very much. That's not one of the big sins. It's hard to see. But he would say that that's, man, that's, that's, that's at the heart right there of actually what becomes murder. Now, let me be very clear here. The point what I, that, I, that I see here, that, I'm, that we must escape the love of the evil one. I mean, what I mean by this, and I want you to see, is the, other, is the utter delusion of the world in regards to love. That they have flipped love upside down. The love that the evil one promotes is a view of love that is so deluded that what the world calls love is actually hatred, and often what the world calls hatred is actually love. And what we see going on here with this whole heart of jealousy being at the heart of murder and hatred is I see what is going on here is a heart that says it's selfish, that it's about yourself. And I see this actually borne out in verses 12 and 13. And let's see if I can explain it. He says this, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, this is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament where it goes, hey, if you follow me, they're going to hate you. Now, that is, that is true. That is a true statement that John is communicating here. But I think in the context of these verses, he is telling us something else. He is saying that the world's love, quote-unquote love, is so jacked up that when they see something that is righteous, they say, I hate that. I hate that. I despise that. It's almost like they have a Stockholm Syndrome version of love. That the captor, the devil, has, has taken over what they think of love. And love has become for them entirely and utterly self-centered. It is not about righteousness. It is not about caring for others. It is completely and utterly selfish. The nature of the world's love is, is self as the ultimate. Your brother makes you feel jealous. Your brother makes you feel bad about yourself. Your brother makes you feel that way. And so what do you do? You hate him. You kill him. And your heart of hearts and what you think about him and your jealousy and your covetousness and you're tearing him down or her down. You certainly will kill him physically, but you may kill him with your gossip with your slander, with your lies, with your antipathy, with your lack of care, the hatred of a lack of care. Our culture's obsession with love focuses on a love that is focused on the subjective experience of love, which is this. Love is about what I feel about it. It's about my personal experience, my, my passion for me, and if I don't feel anything good about this anymore, eh, I can be done with this. And we see this playing out in... And no more with any more terrible consequences than in marriage, in which we, we come together in marriage, and what marriage used to be about was you would look across somebody and say, listen, I love you and I'll be with you forever. No matter how hard it gets, I'm still going to love you and serve you. And yet what it is now is pretty much when we get together and we say, I love you today. I feel loving towards you today. And if I feel loving towards you in 20 years, then we'll stay together. But if I don't feel loving about you, if things are not going, if I'm not feeling self-actualized in this marriage, if this isn't, if I'm not thriving in this marriage, this is, it's all, it becomes all about the I. I, I, me, me. This is the evidence that we see. 
It's interesting, this week, I was up really early with a couple of my kids, and I had one of them was just sick, and so we were doing the thing where you just kind of, like, you just lay on the couch and watch TV, and we got to Sesame Street. I haven't seen Sesame Street in years, and it was a, it was a show highlighting Oscar the Grouch. I like Oscar the Grouch. Like, I feel like he's like me, just like when Mickey, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse focuses on Donald. I find this, he's always so frustrated with his focus on Mickey Mouse, and I'm like, yes! Let's be done with him. Let's go to Donald. He's like me. And Oscar's the same way. But Oscar was learning a lesson, as you're supposed to learn in Sesame Street. In this lesson, he has this little friend called Wormy. And, and, and so he, he, he's not really, he doesn't want to do what Wormy wants to do. And so whoever the actor is who's there and he's teaching Oscar the lesson, he says, Oscar, don't you, oh, this makes Wormy feel bad that you're not doing what Wormy wants you to do. And you should do what Wormy wants you to do because it'll make you feel good. That was the bottom line. Love Wormy, sacrifice for me, but only because it makes you feel good. Otherwise, who cares, right? The first step to, to loving others is to reject the evil one's love pattern, which is selfish love, which is self-centered love, which makes it all about me. And actually, if you're so self, if, you, if love for you is all about you and what you feel, and everything, then you know what you'll do? You'll end up just hating everybody. Everyone, for introverts in the room, We'll talk about introverts, extroverts, and how you'll love. For the introverts in the room, you know what you'll do? You'll view everyone. Love will be this, because what you want, it will be, everybody is just a burden on me. Just, just stay away from me. For the extroverts in the room, you know how you'll love? Your love will be f- performed in hatred, which will be everyone will simply be a, 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 something to help you. You're all here to be my audience, to make me feel good. So for, for an introvert, yeah, just get away from me. For the extrovert, I'm here. To, you're here to be used by me. So which is it? First thing you got to do if you're going to love, as God calls us to love, to love one another, you got to get rid. You got to run. You, literally, He says, stay away from the love like Cain. You got to run from this kind of love, the love of the world. The second thing John tells us is this: is not only do you have to escape the love of the evil one, you also have to experience the love of the sacrificial one, though. Listen, if you're going to give up the love of the world. And all that it offers, all of its self-actualization, all of its warm and fuzzy feelings, and you're to embrace actually to truly love one another, then you're going to have to experience a different kind of love. How do we learn how to love? Or actually, how do we relearn how to love? How do we know what love is? This is a question, right? Tina Turner wanted to know what it was. In fact, she just simply rejected the notion so many of our songs are about this, literally asking the question, I want to know what love is. We have unbelievable misunderstanding. Love for us now is tolerance. Just tolerate people. Love, love we think often we, we, we confuse with lust. The great God, Eros, lust. Lust is everything. Love is sentimentalism. Love is being nice, which is what your Aunt Gertrude wants you to be. Just be nice. But that is not what is going on here. For the Christian, we don't have to guess what love is. It is not mystical and ethereal. It is not merely philosophical. It, is, it has a cross. It has something physical. It has something tangible. You know what love is because Jesus died. Verse 16, by this we know love. And that word lo- know is about experience. That I have experienced love that he laid down his life for us. You want to see what love looks like. You look to a bloody cross. Now, that's radically different, right, than what the world says is love. You look to a bloody cross. The love about which John is speaking cannot be analyzed apart from the vent of the cross of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it cannot be in, you cannot know what love is truly apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It's only there. In fact, you can't even know what God's love is. He's been communicating about it all through the Old Testament, but you don't know the fullness of it and the beauty of it and the amazement of it until you see the cross of Jesus Christ. And whenever actually in the New Testament we see this unbelievable connection that the, the New Testament writers will almost never speak about love without also bringing up the cross. They're almost always and intricately connected within verses. Just let me give you a few examples of verses you probably know. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. What did he give him to do? Give him the do, to die for us. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And how do we know he loved me? And gave himself up for me. Romans 5a, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In each of these verses, the cross of Christ is made the measure of God's love. It's how you know what love is. It's how you know you're loved. And in fact, not only that, it's, 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 it displays to us the depths of it. You know, there's a special character to the love of God. It's a special character, and it's this word sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. It is seen in the self-sacrifice. The world says self-love is this, is about self, self-love. God says, no, 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 that's not the kind of love. My love is self-sacrificial. The world's love, the devil, evil one's love is take, take, take. It's all about you. He says, no, no, no. My love, my love is about giving, pouring myself out for other people. If you're going to be a person who loves, then you're going to have to receive the love of God. You're going to have to have experience as a recipient of the radical, unbelievable love of Jesus Christ on behalf of yourself. If you're going to be a person who loves, if, you're going to be, if we're going to be a community as a church that loves one another, then we're going to have to, as a church, embrace the love of God for us. If we're going to be merciful, we have to see and experience God's mercy for us first. If we're going to be welcoming, then we have to experience the warmth of God's welcome, that through his son, we are welcomed into his presence. If we're going to be gracious to one another, we'll have to first experience God's graciousness to us. But the cross doesn't just simply tell us what love looks like. The cross actually empowers you to love. It empowers you to love. It is the means by which you become a person who knows how to love. Because Jesus' love on the cross, it changes people. For example, who, the, book, the person who's writing this book is John. You know what John's nickname was? The Son of Thunder. Now let me, let me what do you think? I mean, that kind of was, there was this kind of, they were playing, making a play on their, their name. James and John's, the son of Alphaeus, the sons of thunder. But there also probably there was a reflection about their personality, don't you think? And it actually is played out. In fact, there's a particular occasion where Jesus and his disciples are moving through an area where Samaritans, and Jews and Samaritans don't really like each other so much, and John sees a bunch of Samaritans, and he looks and he goes, you know what, I hope they burn in hell. That's essentially what he says. That's what, how, did, how did the guy who looks, at, who looks at other people who weren't like him and goes, burn in hell, and suddenly become the guy who's like the love guy in the New Testament? How did that happen? How did John, how does John who uh, is, is the guy who's utterly self-focused and self-centered, who completely displays the world's love. Do you remember John? Remember James and John? What happens? They're on their way, way to Jerusalem so Jesus can die, and they're sauntering along, and John's mommy comes up and goes, hey, could you make them first in your kingdom? They, kinda, they went through mommy. They couldn't even have the boldness to go and ask Jesus, hey, can we be first? Can we sit at your right hand? 
self-centeredness and the self-focus of John and the other disciples. And yet here's the guy who comes and he's, he's all about loving one another. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. It should also be on the screen. John stands at the foot of the cross. And what does he see? Here's what he sees. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, that's Jesus' mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So three Marys. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which was John's distinctive distinction for himself as he wrote the gospel, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, and he points to John, he says, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. I want you to see two things about how the cross changes. How the cross changes John and how it can change us. First, John sees at the cross a love that is utterly others-focused. Here it is. Jesus, what's Jesus going through? He's going through, he's literally going through hell. Like, it's in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. You know what hell was for him? The forsakenness of the Father, separation from God the Father, physical, spiritual, relational death. That's what he's experienced on the cross. And it's just a minute, few seconds after this, he's gonna say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in the moment, and when Jesus is pouring himself love, he has the weight of all the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And what is he thinking about? The care of his mother. Now that's pretty unbelievable. Some of you can't even call your mother. Your mom's called and said, asked me to say that. <laughs> but seriously, that when your, your parents give you everything, have given you life, and care, and affection, and they pay your credit card bill, and your gas, and they send you to school, and they have cared for you, and they take care of your, their grandchildren, your children, so you can get breaks, and, you, and you're like, you hardly ever think about them. And yet Jesus, with the weight of the world, look at the love of Jesus. He's thinking about someone else. This is completely other, other than us. And the second thing I want you to see here is what John sees at the cross is a love that binds people together. You see, what's going on here? You have this, this is a weird scene to be pointing you to, to learn about the cross. Well, there's something going on here culturally. In those days, because women were essentially, right, in, in, in as many cultures in history, were second-class citizens. And there was, no, there was no social services then. If you had no children, you didn't get taken care of. And you either begged and hoped someone would give you some food or you would die. Literally, that was the existence of women who were widowed and had no children to care for them, is they were going to die. They were going to starve to death. And so there is, and so what Jesus is doing is he's looking at John, he's saying, listen, I need you to care for my mother. She's living with Jesus, and Jesus is about to die. Here's the person who has cared for her. Now, here's the, the, the odd thing. Does Jesus have brothers and sisters? Little biological brothers and sisters? Yes, he does. And what, what is Jesus' expectation? That he says, you have a, what he's communicating to his, his mother Mary and what he's communicating to John is this, that you are in a new family. That the cross communicates that this is what binds us now, my cross. That I have biological brothers and sisters and it should be culturally their responsibility to care for you, but I'm gonna look to one who I now call my brother 
and who is being saved and who's looking to the cross and my mother who looks to my own cross to be saved and I'm gonna say you are a new family and a new community. Love my mother. Mother, this is your son. This is the radical shift of the, of, of the cross. Now listen, moms out here, you don't want me to tell your kids. <laughs> your real family is the church but that's actually the theological truth. God bless you. Have your family events. Get together with your grandkids. But there is, a, there is a more significant family, and it's the family of God that gathers around this unifying truth that we all need the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we come together. That's what we claim. That's what these new members this morning claim. Right? We start with, one, I deserve to go to hell, and two, the only way I'm saved is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's an unbelievable statement, and yet that's what binds us. And so how does the cross, the cross changes us? Because we see in the cross and we experience in the cross an utterly, completely selfless love. And we see a love that binds us together. The third thing John tells us about how to love one another is he tells us that we must learn to express the love of a loved one. Express the love of a loved one. Verse 16, reading through verse 18, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, what's important to see here is we could end with the gospel, and I, I love ending with the gospel. The gospel is the motivating force. The gospel is how you learn how to love. It's how you're changed in order to love. But what I want you, want you to see is that John then turns and he says that love needs to become specific. It needs to be embodied. It needs to take on flesh. And John drives home. He's pointing to the fact that, listen, we, this is not, we, we talk about love too often culturally, if it's particularly because we, we don't want to be pushed on by the, the realities of love. Because the realities of love are really hard, aren't they? I, we love the idea of marriage and getting up and saying nice things to, to one another. We love that. But then when your spouse, who like, you know, you don't even like them hardly anymore 15 years in, and you're going, I have to die for that person? That, that's the realities of love. And so it actually has to be out, brought out of the ethereal and out of the nice warm feelings and out of the conceptual and brought down into the realities. And so what John drives home and he says this, your love has to become specific. And here's how he says the love. I'll give you a phrase. It's going to be a key phrase. I think it might be on the screen. It's this. Love those in need by loving indeed. Love those in need, that you know love, that you have the love of, like Christ when you love those in need by loving indeed. As opposed to why, what's our kind of love? Here's our kind of love these days. The normal, vapid, surface level love that we would like to proclaim and display, which is this. I love those I like with the click of a like. Right? If you, the way you love people is liking their Facebook status, but that literally, if that's how you feel loved, if that is the, the weight of it, and that's how you love. People tell me, I know, I'm supposed to be a more socially, social media savvy pastor. Like, I'm being told, put pictures of your kids up. I'm trying. I never even think about it. Like, I just, but, you know, people, and I'm talking about, I'm terrible at social media etiquette. But listen, if pastoral care comes down to social media etiquette, I'm out. I'm out. And frankly, if being the church comes down to social media etiquette and the likes that we get for one another, we all just applaud each other and pat each other on the back and grab each other's hand and go, there, there. Then, brothers and sisters, this is, this is a love that is vapid, that, is, that isn't going anywhere, and it's not going to change the world. The love that's going to change the world is the love like Christ, where you love those in need. 
those who de- are in desperate need, and you love indeed, in which you actually, you, take, you don't just use words. John says, listen, you got to do something more than talk. Now, now, you can love in with really tough talk, with hard talk, with using words of encouragement. But he, what he goes on, he says, listen, this is, this is not about making professions to one another and great speeches. This isn't something about, talk is cheap, John says, right? We get that idea. That's just kind of a cultural statement that we make. I think we get it from the Bible. Talk is cheap. And I, and, and, but he, we would say stuff like, in our love, I would die for you. Really? Will you really die? Because you don't even seem to be able to go pick up groceries. Right, you, you can't seem to be patient with me when I'm having a bad day. You can't seem to put the kids to bed when I'm exhausted. What is it for you? <laughs> I'll die for you. That's what our songs say. It's so vapid. Listen, we actually have one who's shown us what it looks like to live and to love. Love is an action word, and it expresses itself in good deeds. It expresses itself in actual actions. This, this is important. It's been a little while since I've been on a social justice kick. Everybody gird yourself, right? Everyone like the, our, our racial PTSD in this church because I yell at you so, many, so often. But um, your, your, your sentiments about race don't matter. I mean, they matter, but it has to become embodied. You have to do something. Right? We can't simply say, man... I'm not a racist or I feel loving towards that person. You, you know, it would be nice if we did something. There's actually justice to be done. There's work to be done. It has to be embodied. Christian love involves a passion that leads to action. What do we see? How, do you, how is the love of God demonstrated? Romans 5, 8. And that he died for us. Dying is an action. And he didn't take it on passively. He laid his life down, we see in Philippians 2. We saw it in our worship service this morning. He became humble to the point of obedience unto death. And so how does this look for you? How does it look specifically? This means giving up your rights, your time, your money. It means sitting in hospital rooms. It means we do dishes for people who are exhausted. Yes, we cook meals. But it might mean more than that. It might mean you take their kids It might mean you dedicate yourself and you don't just say, I'm going to insert myself into this place of need and I'm going to back out, but I'm going to live there. Physically, emotionally, I'm going to invest in this person. You listen to people who, (laughs) it means you listen to people who talk too much. Right, right? I mean, honestly, if we're being honest, this is, right, the person who's just so darn annoying and yet you'll say, you know what, I'm going to sit, I'm going to listen to them y- yammer on for two hours. Because most likely this is the greatest need of their heart, to be felt like they're heard for the first time. You're going to love someone like that. Have you fallen in love with God's people? Let me ask you a very practical question. I ask you this in your community group discussion guide, so you'll get to answer this together. Some of you, you're, you're like the, the, the Levite who's sauntering along the Jericho Road. And you see, a, you see the Samaritan on the side, or you see the, the, the Jew on the side. It's the Samaritan who's going to take care of him. And you're just too darn busy. Here's the question. What do you got to offload in order to spend more time with people? What do you got to offload? I end with this story. It's a story of a pastor that I know. It was, um, he had an oldest son who was seven. And when he was seven years old, he had to face 
a terrible and horrific surgery that was going to go on for hours and hours and hours. It was going to go on for seven or eight hours long. And, he, and the day before the surgery, he, for some reason they waited the day before the surgery to come and say, you know what, he's going to need a lot of blood. He's going to need a lot of blood. At the time that which this pastor friend of mine was going through this with his son, it was it, kind of the early to mid-90s, things in regards to blood in the United States because of HIV scares, it, there was not a whole lot of trust about the blood bank. And so they said, you know what, you're probably going to want to supply a lot of this blood. And he was like, more than 24 hours would have been a nice notice. Um, and he, so what he did is he, he called the church office and he just said, hey, will you just spread the word, tell a few people to go to the blood bank, give my son's name so we can you know, have blood for him tomorrow for this unbelievable surgery. And so he drives back. He's, he's driving back. The, the hospital's about 45 minutes away from, from where he lived. And he goes to the blood bank in his town, and he's going to go give blood himself for his son. And when he gets there, he is stunned. And he said, never forget it. There was a line out the door and down the sidewalk of the members of the church. And he said this, and he was Unbelievable what he said. There is a line out of, the peop- out of that door, all there to give blood for his son. That the blood of the body of Christ courses through the veins of his son. Now, where would a church get an idea like that? Because they were a people who'd experienced the blood of a son who would shed his blood so that his, my, his blood might course in them and through them. Let's pray. God, I just want to lift up our community groups in a real practical way. Because, Lord, this was, this was high elevation this morning. There wasn't a whole lot of specifics. Like, Lord, love's like the biggest category. <laughs> it can't be covered in three points and in 30 minutes. And so, gracious God, I pray for our community groups, one, for the discussion, that, that, Lord, we would, Lord, this discussion could lead some places, some places that, that are hard that we don't want to do, to love and the practicalities of life. But, God, I pray that our community groups would have this discussion. How are we going to give up things in order to love people better? to be more practical, to be more sacrificial in our love. And then, Lord, I pray for our community groups as well as the primary place, as the front lines of loving one another in this church. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would, you would adorn the conversations there. That, Lord, I pray that for people's the humility to confess need and that there would be a, a stampede in those community groups to meet those needs. That we would, like, like that church did, to care, to provide blood for a son. That we as a church would just run all over each other just trying to love one another well. God, I pray for the marriages in this room. And Lord, where selfish love is, is what kills them. And so gracious Heavenly Father, I pray where repentance needs to happen in this room right now. Where we have viewed marriage and frankly maybe our kids our roommates, our coworkers, that they exist there for us. Oh, gracious God, fill us up with the cross of Jesus Christ such that we come out of here, we repent of that, we trust, and we're filled up with the love of Jesus so that we go love our spouses, 
We go love our kids. We go love the unlovely in our communities. Oh God, make us practical. Make us embodied lovers. And would the world see and rejoice and say, I want to know a love like that. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.